From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlaw, pop culture critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, here with Mick LaSalle for Movies with Mick LaSalle. Hi. Hi, Peter. How's it going? It's going fantastic. It's Shazam Week. Yeah, Shazam Week, and uh, Shazam's pretty good. You I like, like you yeah. like Shazam. You don't love all the superhero movies, No, though. I don't. No, I don't. Yeah, so I want to get in your psyche and just ask you, like, what did a superhero movie do to you? Do, do you remember the very first one you saw? Uh, the first one I saw, I loved. It was uh, Batman, 1989. In other words, I was on the job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you I was remember 30. <laughs> 30 years old when you yeah. saw your yeah. first superhero movie? Was there a point where you thought like maybe it was too many? Uh yeah, probably the second Batman movie. <laughs> but uh yeah, I I but really really when I started thinking it was too many it was during the this this uh, Marvel universe thing. Yeah. I started getting sick of the universe. Even though some of them are good. Yeah. Yeah, some of them are good. In fact, like half of them I've liked. Technically, but you know this when you're reviewing movies, you're reviewing movies. The difference between being able to tell that something's good and being something that you would genuinely want to see if you weren't working. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you like Shazam. You're yeah. going to talk more about that with Leba Hertz, yes. who returns, recently retired at the Chronicle, but just getting started on movies with Mick LaSalle. The only podcast in history that covers baseball, movies, Dumbo, Johnny Depp. You talk about Johnny Depp today yes. and the Federalist Papers. Yeah, we got that. We got that in. <laughs> got that in. We tried to fit it in. <laughs> <laughs> Datebook Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. This is Mick LaSalle, and welcome to the Movies with Mick LaSalle. And I am here with my editor emeritus, uh, Leba Hertz. Hi, Leba. Hi. How are you doing? All right. How are you doing? I'm fine. How about them Mets? How about them Mets? Fifty years ago. What happened? Fifty years ago in 50 October. Years ago. You know, it's it. You know, recently I decided to rewatch those games on YouTube, mm-hmm. which to some degree, you know, I could. In those days, those those movie those those movies, <laughs> those games were all day games, you know. Right. And so, if I was in, you know, I was in whatever I was in fourth grade or, or something, and uh, I think maybe fifth, and uh, so I'd be listening to it on the radio covertly, and I missed it. Although I think I I saw I think I saw Ron Swoboda's Catch live. But that series, it was really incredible to go back and watch it. It's just absolutely amazing. I remember my dad was in the ho- had just been home from the hospital. He was watching, and I remember the last game, running home and watching Cleon Jones hit the knee. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, catching yeah. The final out. But uh, one of the things is this is a movie podcast essentially, and one of the most interesting things was the movie Bang the Drum Slowly. Right. The book was written before that, but the movie was made after, and Michael Moriarty's character was loosely based on Tom Seaver. Oh, wow. And and the But the more interesting part of that movie, Bang the Drum Slowly, was one of the supporting roles. Uh, the catcher who has cancer... Is Robert De Niro, and, and, right? and it's played by some nobody. He's yeah, going right. to become a nobody. Well, yeah, that is one. Yeah, I've never Robert seen... Robert De Niro. The reason why I say Robert De Niro, I'm not like jumping in to like be right 
I'm jumping in because I'm guessing because I've never seen that movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's like. Is it, it good? It's really a good movie. And actually, a lot of it was filmed at Shea Stadium. Oh, really? And there's a book out about Shea Stadium. Is it supposed to be about the Mets? Is it? No, it's a, f- a fictional team called the. I think it was called the New York Monarchs. I think it was the name oh, of the team. Oh, wow. And or something it, like that. Is but it, it was, set in modern times? It said in modern. Well, it said at the time. Then modern. Then, yeah. then modern times. I think the book. Yeah. And But the interesting thing was they filmed at Shea Stadium, even though I think it takes place in Buffalo. In the book, anyway. Oh, okay. Because Buffalo had a, quote, major league team. And, and then, of course, 69 Mets and Oh God, what George Burns has to say. What, yeah, what did he say again? He said something is, they said something about, oh, well, who do you think was out in the outfield for the Mets? Something like that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it, there, is, there, there is a feeling, and I guess we should get to the movies, because yeah. when we're not only, we're not only right now doing a podcast for baseball fans but we're doing a podcast for geriatric baseball fans but then we're getting even more specific we're doing a podcast for geriatric baseball fans from New York so we're going to do about another 30 seconds on this but anyway there was a weird feeling of enchantment about that whole summer and and fall it really it it did begin to feel like like there was a there was a divine hand with a finger on the scale. There uh, was a feeling like that. I mean, like the, that. and that's really fast. You had Man Walks on the Moon. Yep. You had the um, war, and uh, I mean, you had the Vietnam Woodstock. And you had the moratorium the, the moratorium. Right and in then. fact, I think Tom Seaver actually said, if we can um, if we can walk on the moon, if the Mets can win the World Series, then we can end the war. I would say of those three things, the thing that seemed the most impossible was the Mets winning the World Series because... You know, the, Nixon had a secret plan to end the war, which, mm-hmm. of course, it was, <laughs> he kept it a secret for about four years. And then uh, the man on the moon thing was such a gradual thing, you know, right. so that by the time it happened, we figured it was going to happen. Anyway. And plus, they never told you how dangerous it really was until afterwards. Yeah, that's right. Transition into movies. Pick a favorite baseball movie other than bang the drum slowly. Um, I would have to maybe say, uh, I love Major League. Uh, Field of Dreams comes to that's mind. That's the one for me. Um how about I, I love to watch the Lou Gehrig story. Oh, Damn Yankees! Of course, it's my favorite baseball movie. Damn yeah, yeah. I, I would say Field of Dreams. Okay, so leave it. We had a we had a week in movies, and uh, so what? What I don't know. What What would you like to talk about? How about Shazam? Shazam. Well, Shazam is not bad. I mean, Shazam is is probably the best of the DC Comics movies, but that's that's not that's not Better saying enough. Wonder Woman. Oh. Oh, oh, that's right. I take it back. <laughs> I better redo my little man box. Yeah, that's yeah. Of course, Wonder Woman is absolutely the best. Well, this is the second best of the DC comics. I got okay, to, 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 to stop this, and I have to run upstairs. Anyway, uh, it's it, you know most of the DC comic ones they're not very good, and and this one this one's good, and it's a good movie that I until maybe the last 25 minutes and then it just descends to the usual thing where they're just throwing each other around the, the screen and then you know nobody can get hurt because everybody's a superhero and, and it's just urban destruction and all that. It's just the usual I'm thing. I'm going to also break your heart a little bit more. What, what about the first and second Dark Knight Batman movies? Do we count those, though, as DC? DC I don't know if we count <coughs> them as part of the new DC universe competing with the new yeah i don't i think it was we're in a different zone but yeah if we if we start going back to the like if we start thinking of dc comics movies as being like like tim burton's batman from 1989 then we'd bring in a lot of talking about christopher nolan even the christopher nolan christian bale 
Yeah, well, those would be better than, or at, le- at least at least one of those mm. is better than Shazam. And I guess I guess both of those are better than two of those or three of those are better. No, at least two of those are better than Shazam, and maybe three is better than Shazam. But with, with um, one of the things about Shazam is again the superhero is kind of a nerdy guy, right? Well, the superhero is is kind of um, uh, a kid, mm-hmm. because what it is is it's a fourteen year old kid who says Shazam. And he turns into the, the the superhero, adult superhero. So it's a little bit like like super, like Superman meets Big. Mm. It's like that, and um, and 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 it's and the movie explains in a nice nice sort of way. The movie explains, but without trying, without saying, here we are explaining this. But explains at least for me, the appeal of uh, superheroes to kids. Because basically all the kids in the movies, the, the movie are really, really powerless and, and they need to have superpowers. And of course, once you're like 10 or 12 years old, you start resenting the fact you have no power. Whereas before, if you just took it as the universe. But by the time you have the age of reason, you can, you know, you can figure out what you want to do and you still have your parents and everybody and, and you and you tend to be littler than everybody and you just have no power at all in the world. It's understandable that that would be an attraction to just want to have all the power in the world to be like, you know, Shazam or Superman or somebody. Well, Kick-Ass. Well, yeah, Kick-Ass, right. I forgot about Kick-Ass. <laughs> is Kick-Ass DC Comics too? I don't think Kick-Ass is anyone's comics. Oh, it's good. A, it's original, I believe. Yeah. I, you know, for me, I didn't, um, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't into comic books when I was a kid. And... Oh, I was. I was actually DC, not Marvel. Yeah. But I was Superman, and also there was there's the Justice League and the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah. Justice League was the more mature league, and I was into the Legion of Superheroes, which was in the future. Okay. And I remember Supergirl was part of that group. Super- Even though she was young, she could go back, you know, fast forward in time. Yeah. And they also had Lightning Boy, who had to become Light Boy because he lost his powers. And yeah. they had Monel. Yeah. And uh, I think they had uh, Ultraviolet Girl or something like that. Somebody yeah. can tell me what it was. But I, for some reason, like that one. Yeah. I like going. I like time travel, so that might have been one of the yeah. reasons why. Too. I was just. I was just. I just read the complete works of Shakespeare when I was twelve and did stuff like that. I was kind of. I, uh, I read a couple of the kind Cliff of a Notes. Deprived child. I read a couple of the Cliff Notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my big project for my for twelve. But I got genuinely interested. I did. In I did it, read so. some of the Federalist Papers in high school. Does that count as intellectual? You know, the Federalist Papers. One of those things. I, I'm always saying I'm going to read the Federalist Papers mm-hmm. because they sound really good when they're quoted. But then I always get stuck and don't read them. I just, I, I, they just, I, think, they, I, think I, I, I got to force I think, myself. I think John Jay's are, is it John Jay? I always get John Jay. John Jay's are kind of shorter each one, so he might be the one. Yeah, but I mean, mostly it's Hamilton. Yeah, he's a wordy guy. Hamilton's kind of a wordy guy. Ham, you got Hamilton writing probably about 75, 80% he, he of does, them. He, was, he, he did, and then yeah. they had Madison and John Jay. Yeah, Madison wrote the second most. But Madison's is supposed to be good, like really important. Anyway, we're off in the Federalist Papers. What are the oh, so anyway? I would it, if you like superhero movies, you'll like Shazam. And if you don't like superhero movies, this is a good one. If you want to experiment, I wouldn't necessarily say. If, if you have an active dislike of it, I wouldn't recommend it. But if you just sort of like like them a little, you take them or leave them. This is a good one. So I know that that's not terribly enthusiastic, but I just. As a genre, there is a genre I don't, I'm not in love with, but I can recognize a good one from a bad one. There's some sometimes, genres I don't. Sometimes. I guess so. there's some genres I, I I so dislike that I'm I'm not so sure that I can. 
but those I wouldn't reveal because I then I'd be inviting myself never to review those things. So, what else we got? Well, talking about um, flying heroes, how about Dumbo? Oh yeah, Dumbo. That was that was last week, but that's still around. I think Dumbo is really good. Um, Dumbo, you know, Dumbo is is a 1941 animation. It's only about 65 minute, minutes long, I think. Um, and I think the appeal of Dumbo is is something to do with our relationship with elephants, because elephants are they're 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 nice. You know, they're intelligent. And they, they're big enough to cause a lot of trouble. They don't cause any trouble at all. They don't bother anybody. Um, and and the, the record of human beings with regard to elephants has been pretty sorry. I mean, people have been really bad to these guys, and, and they don't deserve it. And so when you get this very innocent elephant who can fly, and then he gets taken away from his mother, I mean, that whole... It comes freighted with all that history, and I think that it does even for... <laughs> <laughs> and and you know the 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 it's like Bambi. <laughs> the whole I think the whole idea of Dumbo is like a seriously good idea, and yeah yeah I know Dumbo the the thing with the mother I mean the mother is taken away from Dumbo and she's basically put I'm into keeping. a into a uh, an elephant insane asylum <laughs> and yeah anyway I I like. The idea of Dumbo, and I, I'm not sure if I've ever seen it, because if I saw it, I would have seen it when I was, you know, scared of the witch in, in The Wizard of Oz. But I did go back and, and watch some, some of the other Dumbo, and I like this Dumbo better. I think there's a place for both of them, but I, I like this Dumbo. So sacrilegious. Yeah, is it really? Uh, especially and the interesting thing uh, for you listening is is mixed relationship with with Tim Burton is not usually very good. And it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, yeah, you know. But mostly, mostly you don't. That. And the other- <laughs> <laughs> well, I I I don't I I've come I've come to like some things. I I think he's getting better. <laughs> I may have just be just you know my resistance may be wearing down. But I really like big eyes, and I... You didn't like big eyes? Oh, I think it was a mess. Oh, it was beautiful to look at, but I thought you had two actors playing totally different. You had Amy Adams playing a dead serious, and Christoph Waltz, who did it, he was the one who was more correct, playing like, this is really silly, I'm just going to play a kind of, you know, nonchalant. And the two of them never click. Oh, I thought Because she's doing a tragedy, and he's doing a comedy. Oh, and it seems like Tim Burton said, "I'll just film it really nice, and you guys do whatever you want to do." Oh no, it was, it was a tragic comedy. Uh, <laughs> I I love that movie, but um, that was one of my favorite movies of I know like you twenty did. whatever it was. It was so wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I used to. If he stopped making movies ten years ago, I'd just say every time I see this, you know, you notice he got away from that awful Johnny Depp guy. <laughs> when you get away from Johnny Depp, because Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp is lousy. Can we just say it? I mean, he doesn't have to be lousy. He could be good. He was good he in has, 21 Jump Street. Yeah, well, he was good in the thing with Al Pacino, the the, the, the thing with where Donnie Brasco. Donnie Brasco. He's good in the, he, he was good as Dillinger. He can be good. He, was good in that, he doesn't want to be good. He was good at that Boston thug that just died in prison, too. Was he good, Whitey Bulger? Yeah, he was yeah. good in that, that movie, but he was really good in that. He can be good. It's just that he, he, he has ideas about what's funny that are not funny, and and he he has ideas about what's quirky, which is exactly the same in every movie. And I just find him, you know, just 
he's of of all the major actors of the time that I've been reviewing movies, I'd have to say he's my least favorite. Um, but it doesn't mean he's awful all the time, or I dislike him all the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I think him and, and Tim Burton are just an unhealthy combination. I think they bring out something not good in each other. So yeah, I like this movie a lot, and I love the 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 fact that you don't even question that an elephant can fly. You just you re- respond instead to the emotional thing that it does to you see an elephant fly because you so accept that it's all real it's, it's really if, amazing except if you're an aeronautical engineer you know they're groaning when they watch that movie yeah i know that's probably yeah i know i mean if you you ever pick a you know a bird up off the floor when they like when they crash or something especially if they've been clipped you lift them <laughs> up you lift them up and and they weigh they weigh nothing you know they mm. weigh they're that's that's how come they can fly it's because they weigh nothing Anyway, uh, also it's a ni- it's a really nice nice movie for um, Eva Green, who usually just plays just evil, femme fatales, and it was beginning to become a parody of herself. And and uh, you know that she's doing what they're paying her to do, but in this case she gets to play a nice lady, and and, and she's good, she's very nice. So anyway, um, so that, that's a good movie. I've been talking about. Um, I guess you could say heroes and superheroes. Let's go to the real superheroes in the documentary, The Invisibles. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure. Is that still in town? I hope it is. I don't know. Well, if you if you get a chance to see it, well, you know something. If it leaves town, the next thing is going to be on video in three seconds. It'll be on pay per view in three seconds. So just you know, The Invisibles is a terrific documentary that blends live action, but really well acted live action with entire scenes. Of and it and it's about four different people, who didn't know each other, who were Jews hiding in Germany from the Nazis, but it's interesting the way they hide because to some degree they're hiding in plain sight. They're going to the movies. They, what they're trying to do is not run into anybody they know. And in this in this case, they're the, the lot. Most of them, or maybe all of them, in, in this story are in Berlin. So, you know, Berlin is a very huge town, and it's possible to never run into anybody. But also there was a woman, there was a Jewish woman, who in exchange for having her family not deported, agreed to rat on everybody else. Pretty horrible. And everybody was terrified of this woman. But anyway, in between the the live-action scenes, and there are many, and they're keeping track of four stories, very grace, gracefully, they are also interviewing the actual people. Uh, and I, I just thought it was just great um you know there's there's a lot of i mean the holocaust as a subject for movies it has has the advantage of being incredibly dramatic and And timeless and timeless and horrible uh but it has the disadvantage of being very picked over you know you just it's the story is pretty familiar but this was an aspect of it that i didn't know about but it also was done in a way that was different, and uh, I th- I just thought it was wonderful. So I think that's a you know as good as good as they get. A couple of other movies this week: Diane or Diana. Diane, yeah, Diana gave the highest rating too. I mean, I it's somewhere between like a three and a four. You mean an interested in a sleeping man? No, 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 no. Three stars and four oh, stars. Okay. Good point. Yeah. It it uh, is is it was um, written and directed by the film critic, so that's a trend we should encourage, uh, and also archivist and also then documentarian, Kent Jones. I think he used to work at Lincoln Center. I'm not sure. Uh, and this is his first you know, regular movie, a regular narrative feature. 
And it seems like the kind of movie that's, that's boring, you know, because it's just about this nice lady, Diane, who's going around. She does things for people. She has a son who's a mess. But it's not. It's different. And it's told in an interesting way. And I'd rather let you discover how it's told because it just seem, it seems like any other movie except that it's more interesting. So you're watching and you're saying, this should be boring. How come it's not? And then just when you are lulled into thinking it's one kind of movie, it starts telling the story differently. And it's, it's just really good. But what the movie is is about getting old. It's about early old age. It's about, it's not like about being 80. It's like being about 68, 69, 70. It's a good thing you hedged your bets a little there. I didn't say 64. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I was giving him the stink eye just Well, that would be, that would be getting too close to home. Uh, No, it's like, it's like being like around 70. And, 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 and that, that's what the movie's about. And, and it, and then it becomes not just a lady who's around seventy, but it becomes the phenomenon the phenomenon of being around seventy. And yeah, you know, I haven't seen too many movies about that. Who plays the lead? Uh, Mary Kay Place. Oh, I like her. Yeah, she's, she's just nice. great. She's a nice actress. She she is, and she's she's just great in this. And mm-hmm. and what I said in the review to bring it back to baseball mm-hmm. is that. There are so many movie. There's so many scenes in here where she could swing for the fences. She doesn't swing for the fences. She just hits a double every time she's up, and it just accumulates by the end of the thing. And you just say, "Wow, this this is amazing." But it's not. She's not. She could swing. She could have swung for the fences every scene, but she doesn't do it. And but the cumulative effect of this performance is to say, "Wow, she was great." And we've got something called the public. Oh, the public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Public is a movie with uh, Emilio Estevez who uh, wrote, um. eh, directed, okay, and then stars, no, 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 he should not have starred in this movie, about a guy who works in a library where the homeless are coming all the time. It's Cincinnati. It's cold outside. Homeless want to get in from out of the cold, so they stay there all day, and then one day they decide to just not leave. And then, and he decides to represent their cause. And the movie starts off about the challenges that the public libraries are kind of facing and they're on the front lines of. And it's kind of honest about that. But then it t- turns into just a movie about like a fake news story. Like people think that it's a hostage situation going on there, but it's not. And, and it becomes about that. And it, you know, and it really loses sight of the fact of, of the issue, which they're bringing up the issue they're bringing up is what are we supposed to do with our libraries? Because, you know, on the one hand, people should not be freezing on the street. On the other hand, a lot of these homeless people, not only in the movie, but I would, I was, my wife and I were just talking to people at the public library in San Francisco. They're not only contending with the obvious thing of serious hygiene problems. I mean, like, so like cleaning out, you know, clearing out rooms, you know, so you, people don't even want to like use it. And the people, you know, people go there, they want, it's a public library. Most of the public, most of the public, you know, aren't homeless. On the other hand, the homeless people need, you know, need that, need a, a place to go more than the public needs a book. But even so, do you, do you want libraries to be on the front lines or basically be, be housing every social ill that you can have? Because it's not only the, the hygiene thing, the biggest problem they have, the biggest problem they have is that a lot of these people are crazy and they're not mental health professionals. What are they, what are they supposed to do? And they're, they're scaring people. They're scaring the people who work there. There are people 
I was talking to librarians who retired early just because they, they want to get out of that. So I'm watching the, this this movie about you know the public library and homeless people in the library, and I want to see okay how they're going to handle the thing. And Amelia Estevez handles it by making all the homeless people really cuddly and sweet and fun and, and like this 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 feel good movie about um, uh, the homeless crisis. And it's like what are you talking about? You know, it's just. He's a good enough filmmaker, actually. I was that just it's reasonably, bring that up. it's reasonably entertaining, yeah. you know, in a kind of mild sort of yeah. way. But he also screws up by casting himself because, you know, he's a nice actor. I like him, but he, he doesn't seem to be able to direct himself. He keeps on doing like this this enigmatic thing where he is, um, he's like uh, being like he's saying something, and, he, and I, I think he thinks he's being subtle, but actually we have no idea what he's doing. And I guess he's looking at it and he's saying, hey, wow, yeah, when I'm getting up on screen, you know, it's gold. And meanwhile, he could have cast in the same role. He could have cast um, Jeffrey Wright, who's in the movie. And Jeffrey Wright would have been great. Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright's a great actor. Instead, he puts him in a kind of a small part. Um, It's interesting because I remember a few years back, one of the top ten movies of the year that you had was Bobby. Yeah, Bobby was great. And that was Emilio Estevez. I believe he was also starred in it or not. I can't remember. I'm not sure. If he is, it's in a minor role. Yeah, I mean, I think your only issue was it was the soundtrack, if I remember. Well, yeah, the only thing I didn't like about it is that they, they, uh, towards the end of the movie, all of a sudden you hear... Hello, darkness, my old friend. I said, come on, you can't do that. But see, I like that it's, song, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, but it's somebody else's song. I mean, it's like it's like when, I mean, I didn't even like when Coppola, at the end of Godfather 3, went into that Muscani thing, the Cavalleria Rusticana interlude music. You know, this, you know what I'm talking about. It's the, it's the, it's, well, it is forever the, mu- the music from Raging Bull. This goes. It's the ten. Da, da, da. It's like, like okay, I, I you know. know. I can't. I can't. Well, do it. it's it's. But um, so then you didn't like the final scenes in in um, the graduate where they're going over with the music. No, I think it's just fine. But it's for the graduate, you know. Mm-hmm. But but the, no, the graduate is su- it's such a good movie. The graduate owns Simon and Garfunkel's song. Whatever they own few of the songs and this is but, Robinson but, but they really own Sound of Silence and to cart out Sound of Silence I know that it was it was supposedly written somebody said the Sound of Silence has something to do with Kennedy's assassination and and so to put it with Bobby it, it makes sense but mm-hmm. you have to take into account what what things really mean in the common currency of the world and that means that means the graduate but aside from that it was it was it, it's a terrific movie Bobby didn't get good reviews except from like maybe fifty percent. I of the saw. I, I thought it was very good. It's really good, and and it got the longest, um, until at least until that time, the longest uh, round of applause at the Venice Film Festival in two thousand six. It was like the record. It was total. You know, everybody loved it. Well, going back into a non sequitur, back to the Graduate. Um, did you know that Mrs. Robinson, the song they wrote, it was originally called Mrs. Roosevelt, and yeah, they changed yeah. it. Be- yeah. They changed it because they got. I guess they got. They said, "Hey, we want some music from you guys." Yes. Yeah. They. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I did hear about that. I, I Which makes how a little it, more sense. The Joe DiMaggio verse makes more sense with the Mrs. Roosevelt than with the Mrs. Yeah, Robert. it makes no sense at all. But come to think of it, because Joe DiMaggio, right? Because Joe DiMaggio is in the forties, and Mrs. Mm. and Mrs. Roosevelt's in the forties. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, we got one more. We got one more, yeah. and that was 
the the best of enemies the best of enemies yeah not not best of enemies which is another movie know, a very good documentary yeah. with Gore Vidal and uh, oh, William that F. Buckley a good that's a really good movie it's I didn't not, review that that's, not, that's on Amazon Prime new series yeah I was going to review that remember I was about to review that but then I think we, we had an editor who reviewed that instead best oh, of that's enemies right. yeah that's right that's right yeah he wanted to do that mm-hmm. uh, but anyway so the wasn't best me. yeah no it wasn't you. Um, the Best of Enemies is a movie that if you, you nobody would be allowed to write it because because they wouldn't believe it. Um, nobody would believe it. But it's it's a movie that takes place in nineteen seventy one in Durham, North Carolina. It's a true story about um a Klansman, the grand no, the exalted cyclops of the local clan. They got some names, these guys. Unbelievable. The exalted cyclops of the clan, a guy named C. P. Ellis. Um, is played by, of course, Sam Rockwell. Yes! Who, Sam Rockwell plays anybody who's like a racist, but you like him. <laughs> <laughs> Except and, he didn't, didn't. And then he becomes like a not racist. But how come Spike then? Lee didn't cast him in Black Klansman? To play what? I don't know, but a likable Klansman. No, no, because cause the, cause, 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 cause <laughs> it's, it is Sam Rockwell's destiny to be a good guy by the end of the oh, movie. Oh, that's right. He was actually, that's right. That was that movie that he won the uh, Oscar for. Yeah, I mean, he's basically, uh, he's yeah. kind of, he's a it racist. It was controversial because they said they couldn't, like, turn him over or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there are some people who want to believe that, that, that racism is an incurable condition. I, I'd, I'd, rather, <laughs> I'd rather believe otherwise, you know. Uh, that That's also uh, part of the criticism uh, that I've heard. I mean, nobody would say anything. Nobody would say, I believe that racism is an incurable condition because it sounds too stupid, but that's part of well, the, at, the, the dislike of some, in some circles of Green Book. But look at, what, look at what happened with George Wallace. I mean, this was the ultimate Racism racist. is a curable condition. I mean, it, and it's just this not man, for everybody. Yeah, I mean, this was the ultimate racist, and, yeah. and it was George Wallace, yeah. and he gets, you know, he gets shot, and he just sort of has this epiphany that, hey, I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people don't realize at the end of his life, he was like really, you know, an activist against racism. But he's forever, unfortunately, he's forever, and he deserves to be forever. The guy Uh, standing in front of a school trying to keep little kids from getting in. Um, Well, anyway, in in the case of of, of this movie, the true story of this this movie is that there was a kind of an integration crisis going on in Durham because the black school had something go wrong with it. It burned down. It, it burned, yeah. and it burned. <laughs> I wonder no, it why. <laughs> no, no, it didn't burn down because of the Klan. As, as the black activist played by Taraji P. Henson says, <laughs> she says the Klan wouldn't be that stupid because if they know that if they burn down the black school, the black kids have to go to the <laughs> white school. So what happens is they have to decide what they're going to do with it. You know, they're going to let the black kids into the white school. They're going to, hold classes in the, the smoke-infested, dumpy black school on a, you know, anyhow. So they convene a big meeting, and they want to have everybody represented, so they have his co-chair, the black activist played by Taraji P. Henson, whose real name is Ann, At- Ann Atwater, and C.P. Ellis, who's played by Sam Rockwell. And Sam Rockwell, I mean, they're both terrific, but this is essentially Rockwell's movie because he's the one who has to change, right? I mean, He's the guy who has to stop being a racist. And in real life, and this is what everybody knows going into the movie, so I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, you know, review, you know, and also the title. These two people eventually become friends and uh, they work together. And and this guy, like, ended his life as somebody working for the NAACP. So 
the guy, the man has a transformation. But the movie is not fake about how such transformations happen. It's not sentimental at all. And it doesn't portray being in the Klan as anything other than a bad thing, obviously. But also, to the it doesn't it it doesn't make it like his transition is not easy and they don't make it easy and it's not like getting hit with a thunderclap or anything it, it's a very gradual thing and it's uh it's just very very well handled and you know it's nice to believe that that people can change and and i think that a lot right now in and I think some some people can't change. You know, some people won't change. And and I think I think it's very easy to de- demonize the other side, especially when the other side has some genuine demons on there, on the team. But it doesn't really it doesn't work. I mean, the only thing that sometimes works is not demonizing them, and actually meeting across the table. And that's what these people did. And it's very interesting how it happens. They're both great. He he has always been. One of my favorite actors. I think he's the Jack Nicholson of our time. Uh, I think Except he's, he's not as crazy as Jack in real life. Yeah, one of the things I love about Sam Rockwell, I, he doesn't do it much in this this movie, but there's a stupid expression he gets on his face when he's caught doing something wrong, when like somebody's yelling at him. He always has this really dumbass smile on his face. It's really funny, uh, like a, an embarrassed look. I just I I just look forward to him as an actor and and. He's somebody you could really go back and discover because he is good in everything. And he had an interesting career uh, leading up to his big success with Three Billboards because he was in a lot of weird movies yeah. and, and playing a lot of weird characters. And, and, like as conviction a, and, yeah, and confessions of a dangerous mind. You, you do and, know about where he's from. Yeah, tell me about, tell me about <coughs> it. I, 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 he's from here. He's from the Bay Area. And his father, Jack used to work in the composing room at the Chronicle Examiner. And Sam, when he was an actor, he would come by to visit Dad. And at the old Examiner, where the sports department was, the door read right to the composing. He would walk right through the sports department and, you know, he'd go to see Dad. And when you meet him, because I met him at one of the Mill Valley Film Festivals, he's truly a normal guy. You know, he's very normal. Matter of fact, we were talking sports and then, he liked boxing. Then he confessed very, very, sh- talk about sheepishly, I don't really follow baseball. And this was the year the Giants were in the World Series. And I looked at him and I gave him this look. He says, I know, I know. You yeah. know, that type of thing. But really super nice, normal guy. Yeah. And uh, his father quit uh, and, and moved to New York. And essentially he was trying his hand as an actor as well. I don't well, know what happened there. but Well, listen, um, th- th- I guess we're at the end of our thing. So... Um Let's uh, let, let's sign off and, and the other come quick back thing I was n- going to say is, we didn't talk about us, but did you have a doppelganger? A doppelganger? Yes. Did you have a doppelganger? No. Yes, you did. What? Who was that? Marco Dane. Oh, Marco Dane, the late Marco Dane, the late Gerald Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, come back maybe next week, maybe the week after, and uh, for another exciting and thrilling episode of Movies with Mickle Sal. And for the San Francisco Chronicle, I'm Mickle Sal, and I'm Libra Hertz. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Mick LaSalle and Lieber Hertz. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is Mozart Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. 
Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. Thank you.